Ladies and gentlemen. Ali, a sneaky right hand. Another sneaky right hand. This time he works over the shoulder. p.m. each and every day right now in studio Monday through Thursday. Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas, our Friday home, T.C. Martin. Ballpark Frank in the house. Welcome to the second hour. Appreciate you joining us. Again, we're here every Monday through Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. Non-stop sports talk. This hour, Bob Aaron will join us. The promoter extraordinaire of the Hall of Famer. We'll uh, talk about who Bob Aram is. Very uh, vocal about going to the ballot with, and he's told us before. So, he, some fun on election who day he's with him. promoting for president. Who he's promoting. Very nice. Exactly. <laughs> All right. A lot to do, a lot to touch on. Matthew Holt joins us right now from U.S. Integrity, our good friend. Looking at the sports book side. What's going on, my friend? TC, how we doing? We're good. We're good. We're good. All right. You got out voted today like a good man or what? Uh, I actually early voted last week. Yeah, of course you did. Of course you did. I know that. There you go. All right, man. Let's talk. We got a lot to hit on here with some NFL, some college football, some betting stuff. Trevor Lawrence ruled out of playing in Clemson's game at Notre Dame on Saturday. I know that Dabo Sweeney and, and Trevor Lawrence wanted to play. I kind of wanted to tie this into a, a terrible Tuesday as well here, Frank, because we we knew last week after their game – uh, against Boston College, which they were life and death to come back and win uh, by shutting BC out in the second half. But, uh, you know, there was hope that Trevor Lawrence might play. Then it was announced after that game that, nope, he is not going to be able to pass enough of those protocols. So we get the news today that he's officially out. However, he's going to be at the game. And here's the thing. They're playing in South Bend. So that means Trevor Lawrence is going to travel with Notre Dame. He's going to be on the sideline, but he's not going to play. Okay, in this COVID-19 situation, doesn't this seem a little bit strange? How about stay home? And and Dabo Sweeney said he's basically going to be Coach Lawrence for this particular game. Um, So I assume he's not going to be wearing a mask or something when he's screaming out the coaching stuff. I I don't really know where this makes sense. I understand maybe you want him as part of the team and you want his presence there for his team in that. 
But yeah, I mean, he, he just he just missed games because of COVID. You're lucky you're you're not a Big Ten team where you sit 21 days instead of 10. I don't really see the upside to bringing him along with this. I mean, he's got to travel here. It's crazy. So, Matt, what are your thoughts when you hear this? Uh, I thought it was completely fine, and it, and it was under the exact protocol. He's part of the team. And look, it's 10 days asymptomatic and then four days of slowly progressing back into sports. So once you're no longer symptomatic and you have your negative test, according to the ACC rules, you're not just allowed to then jump back into a game. It starts off with you can do a quarter practice, half a practice, three quarters of the practice, then a practice, then you can play. And he doesn't have enough days to actual actually play, but he is clear to be with the team after the 10 days. So at this point, why are we going to punish this young man and not let him travel, assuming that he has all of his negative tests and he's cleared uh, from the COVID, but he's just not in his ACC four-day acclimation period over yet uh, where they want to make sure your cardio is backed up to full strength? I mean, why not let him travel? I have no issues with it. All right. You just think that a guy, if he's, if he's cleared – uh, you know, if he can travel, he should be able to play. And then again, I mean, I mean, we see so many people here that are extra sensitive about this. They're very extra sensitive, and we're seeing players that, you know, are, you know that they could be false positives, and they're they're protective here and this and that. It's just it's just kind of strange. I don't know. Yeah, look, if the ACC would let him play, Dabo would definitely be playing Trevor Lawrence. I don't think anyone doubts that. But, you know, it's a weird rule. And, look, the, the Big Ten's rules are weird. 21 days out. I mean, look, Wisconsin may never play again with their quarterback situation uh, if the Big Ten doesn't change their COVID rules that they put into effect. But according to the ACC rules, where you have to have that four-day reacclimation period, which he's going to be smack in the middle of on that Saturday, he's already cleared the COVID part. So why don't you want him around the team for motivation, inspiration, and any, anything else? So, so when they say that it's a 10-day thing, it really, in reality, is a 14-day thing because it's 10 and then the 4 like you mentioned. 100%. It's a 14-day cycle, yes. Right. Yep. All right, so maybe even a little bit more stranger for me, Matt, and maybe you can help us out because, again, you deal with a lot of these conferences, have contracts with your company, U.S. Integrity, with these conferences. Uh, The Pac-12 is coming back. They're definitely late to the party. The Big Ten joined a couple weeks ago, and, again, they're still five, six, sometimes seven games behind what the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 have been doing. But the Pac-12 returns, but I am blown away that I'm looking at my schedule here and I see Arizona State – at USC, playing in the Coliseum at 9 o'clock in the morning. Can you please help me out with this one? Yeah, and you know what else blew me away about that game was that USC was such a big favorite. <laughs> right. I mean, what the, I thought that going into the year, Arizona State was a team that a lot of people picked for big improvement this year. You know, Herm Edwards has done a great job there. They thought this was the year with a little bit more veteran players. Um, and this line opened pretty big, and I think the Sun Devils catching double digits in that game is is somewhat attractive, really, especially more than 10 points. I thought that was really going to be a close football team. A lot of new pieces for USC again this year, including their starting quarterback, JT Daniels, who went to Georgia. So I was a little bit surprised with the spread of this game. But I'm just happy to have these things, all these teams back playing again in the Pac-12 because it makes those Saturday nights fun. Because at the end of the day, 
What do you do at 7.30 on Saturday night? Most of the other games are over. A lot of times the 5.30 p.m. or 5 p.m. our time game, it's decided by then. Uh, having those late-night late, late night Pac-12 games is interesting. To your point, why they're playing so early, especially on their opening weekend, who knows? The Pac-12's been quirky all year. No, but this is this is literally crazy. I can never, ever, ever remember a West Coast game starting that early, and we've seen games move for television or if you're sharing a stadium you know, with someone like you're having an NFL game the next day and they need time to get the field, uh, you know, uh, colored properly, you know, the end zones and all that kind of stuff. But USC isn't sharing a home with anyone anymore. I and mean, the Rams got their, their own stadium now. It just is weird, especially this is your opener. It's at 9 o'clock in the morning. And I don't think it really is for TV purposes. But no one is saying this. I mean, think about it, I guess, because what – no one's going to be at the game anyway. This is just weird. A nine o'clock in the morning game. How are these guys going to be ready to play? These guys don't even go to class this early. The spread. Yeah. Do you think that's why the spread is so high? As a road team now, how do you get your kids there? Get out on the road. You know, what time are they going to have to get up? And were they going to bus over to the stadium at six forty-five a.m.? Right. Right. Maybe that's why it's such a high spread. Well, and also playing a team from Arizona where they don't change the clock. I don't even know if the Arizona State's going to know what time it actually is. (laughs) (laughs) Matthew Holt joins us, U.S. Integrity. All right, Matt, the underdogs, they were barking on Sunday and even Monday last night. uh, The Giants uh, get the big cover, nearly pull off the outright win. NFL underdogs, according to my count, 10-3 and this week. We saw a big favorites run the last couple weeks prior to that. Uh, Talk a little bit about what, what your eyes saw on Sunday and Monday. For one of those weeks where the underdogs really came through, you know the, the the betters had a couple of big weeks against the books. The books were kind of due to get their revenge, and this is where they got it. Um, but I don't know that the books made out like bandits like we think they do when there's normally this many upsets, because some of the injuries, some of the COVID issues had already kept people off some of those bigger favorites, including Tampa Bay. There were so many COVID issues throughout the week that all those normal teasers and parlays that people would actually start putting Tampa Bay in on Thursday and Friday and mixing them with the college games and the Sundays. We didn't see as many this week because they were all the, you know, hey, this game potentially might get canceled because some Giants players have COVID. And and then there, there wasn't as much money as normal on a Green Bay game Saturday. So Green Bay loses outright at home to the Vikings. Yet because Aaron Jones was out and they had some injuries, there wasn't quite as much Viking. I mean, Green Bay money as there normally would be. So I, I think the books had a really good weekend this week, this past weekend, but I don't think they had a great weekend. You look at the upsets too. We talk about the the Vikings winning straight up, Cincinnati as well, and the Giants nearly pulled it off. Those those were probably the the, the three biggest uh, you know underdogs that uh, came through. Absolutely. And unfortunately for Tennessee, they're not still, they're still not a tremendously popular team with the books. And people love the Bengals and Joe Burrows right now. You know, you mentioned COVID a little while ago, and we've always known that there's been an injury list for the NFL. Do they need to start making a separate COVID, li- COVID list or something? Because, for instance, um, uh, Andy Dalton trying to come back from the concussion. Now he, it comes down that he's got COVID. Green Bay is losing two running backs, one with COVID, uh, Jamal Williams, who was in close contact with him, along with a linebacker. The NFL is now saying that uh, people should wear masks on the sidelines and maybe expand the sidelines for a little more sh- social distancing and that sort of stuff. 
Does it make sense? To, is the sidelines the problems when you have guys that are smashing into each other for 60 minutes on a football field? Is the sidelines where this stuff is happening? So to answer the first part of that question, I don't think we're ever going to see COVID list because of HIPAA issues. So I think there's some HIPAA issues because it's a virus and thus it's not a an injury per se. Uh, I think there's some HIPAA sensitivities to COVID, and I'm not sure we're going to see COVID lists, college or pro, at least this season. Maybe as it advances, they can put it into some of their contracts that were allowed to disclose this as well on injury reports. But in this year, uh, I think it's going to be fairly sensitive information and will kind of be exposed by the team when they feel it, it necessary to do so. As far as what it is, the sidelines, look, the one thing I've learned during COVID is if you're not a doctor, don't pretend to play doctor, and I'm not a doctor, so anything I say would just be a guess. There you go. All right, well, let's talk about this. And from the college side, you know, Wisconsin's game against Nebraska last week was canceled. This week they announced uh, the game against Purdue is now canceled. That's They missed the last two games, Matt, and the Big Ten has this rule that if you don't complete play six games, you are ineligible for a conference championship. Wisconsin only has six games left on the schedule here. What do you think is going to happen here? I don't think they're going to complete the six games. Uh, that's my gut feeling is that they won't. And I, I think early on they may have had, and they might still have intentions to at least get the sixth game, but I think it started with the fact that, hey, they weren't going to have their first, second, or third string quarterback, and that Nebraska game was probably going to decide the West. So they certainly didn't want to play that one. Now, again, again against a Purdue team whose offense has improved by leaps and bounds and is scoring points this year, they probably also don't want to be without the fourth string, you know, down to a fourth string quarterback. But at some point, they're either going to have to get enough players to play or, or realize that this season is lost. And what I wonder is if you're Wisconsin and you miss next week as well, and now you're no longer postseason eligible. Let's say you you know you you miss the net you end up missing four games in a row the last week the Nebraska game this week the Purdue game and then the next two following are you playing out the last two games of the year for funsies or whatever reason because you can even at undefeated you can't participate in any postseason at four and zero and with no fans there's no revenue generation so if you're Wisconsin do you just say look we're tapping out or do you go ahead and play those last couple of games. That could be the first time we had funsies used on this program ever. <laughs> so certainly, certainly the first time since we extended the two hours. We know that for a fact. <laughs> when you talk about Wisconsin, now you could make the argument that, okay, well, Wisconsin kind of brought this upon themselves. They have 15 players and 12 staff with COVID. But what about the teams that are the opponents of Wisconsin? Nebraska, Purdue this week. A team that is eligible to play but can't because the other team has COVID, if three teams or so that they run up against have COVID and they can't play, they're being penalized when they essentially did nothing wrong. Is that fair, or how do you amend that, or can you? No, but unfortunately during the pandemic, we have, we've had to deal with unfair situations in all of sports. I mean, look what happened to the Buffalo Bills earlier this year where they were literally on Sunday morning not sure if they were going to travel to Kansas City that afternoon to get ready for their Thursday night game or travel to Tennessee to get ready for a Tuesday night game against the Titans. Last minute they found out it was the Titans. 
Uh, admittedly, hearing they were they were doing some preparation that week for the Chiefs. What a surprise! You get to play the number one team in football on Thursday night. Maybe we should prepare for that one. They went in less than prepared and got absolutely waxed by the Tennessee Titans. Was that fair to? To Buffalo, no. Was it fair to the Pittsburgh Steelers that they had to use their bye week with a 38-year-old quarterback in week four because Tennessee got COVID? Absolutely not. Big Ben's an old quarterback, and he's going to need that later bye week around week 10 to give him a rest. You know, they took it on the chin because of another team. Unfortunately, it's just happening time and time again, and you sympathize for the team that's getting screwed in all these spots. But at the end of the day, if we want to have full seasons, if we want to have championships, Major League Baseball World Series, a Super Bowl, you know, a college football playoff and a a division and a conference championship game and all these conferences, we're all going to have to at least acknowledge that at least one team in every conference is going to get screwed at least once along the way. All right, he is Matthew Holt, and Matthew Holt is also our UFC guy. Matt, let's talk about what we saw on Saturday night. Uh, Uriah Hall defeated Anderson Silva. Both fighters pretty beat up. Both guys, uh, you know, needing you know some a lot of medical attention. They'll have some long medical suspensions, and that's normal uh, in the fight game, whether it's boxing or UFC. They are not, will not be able to fight for at least 180 days, so basically six months out of action there. But I want your take not only on the fight. But looking at Anderson Silva, who's 45 years old, we know he has one fight left on his UFC contract, and you know this was billed as his last fight. Uh, your take on the fight itself, and then also, is Silva done or not? I thought the fight was pretty good. For a 45-year-old, Silva performed admirably against a really tough striker in Uriah Hall. You know, For the first couple of rounds, I had Silva winning, and then at the end of round three, he really got clipped and hurt, and barely survived and got finished in round four, but very rare that we see a 45-year-old fighter boxing or MMA. Um, he's the oldest uh, fighter in the UFC by far, so I mean, he is he, he's an elongated fighter, and normally if you see a fighter that old, it's at heavyweight, um, never really at, at a lighter weight, so I think he's certainly done in the UFC. I don't think Dana would book him again. But I do think that in Bellator, it sort of has this veteran division with the guys like Chael Sonnen and you know, Rampage Jackson and some of these older guys, which actually might make sense for. And if there is an audience in Bellator that likes to see aging veteran legends fight each other way past their prime, and these aging legends are able to get big paydays for doing it in fights that are at least not so dangerous, because I am always think it's dangerous to put a 45-year-old in there, 45 year old in there with an elite 28-year-old in his prime. You're going to get somebody hurt or, or maybe killed doing that. But if you're going to put them in with another 45-year-old who's a legend and they're both going to get a paycheck out of it, well, I mean, uh, I don't want to stop people from making any money, but he is 100% done in the UFC. You know, as bummed as I am for Anderson Silva's fight last weekend, what a bummer this weekend. We had a number one uh, contender fight in the UFC light heavyweight division, Tiago Santos, who lost that very contentious split decision to John Jones against formal title, former title challenger Glover Teixeira. The winner was all but promised the next title fight at 205 pounds. But now Dana White uh, announced that the 
light heavyweight champion Jan Blahovich is going to fight the middleweight champion, undefeated Israel Adesanya, who's decided to move up and try to be a two-weight champion. So suddenly our number one contender this fight, is, uh, I guess it's the winner gets to sit on the bench for a while while they wait for a shot. You know, you, you mentioned um, Anderson Silva and maybe going to Bellator, and I've made the joke with some of my friends, Bellator is the organization for young, unknowing upcomers and then kind of the seniors tour of it because you mentioned some of that. You could throw Fader in there. You could throw Tito Ortiz. A, a lot of guys that are done in the UFC do go over there. But when it comes to somebody like Anderson Silva, and I saw that fight, and I agree with you, I definitely thought he, saw, I thought he won the first round. I thought it was, the second round was very close. But what scares me when I see somebody like that is when he does get clipped he kind of goes down easy and you wonder about the extent of knockouts and all the punches and all the fights they've had and that that's what scares me when i see a fighter whether they go to bellator or over to one championship or anywhere else it's the culmination of all the punches and that it's not like boxing where you get hit in the head all the time but when you've been knocked out a couple times and the first time you get clipped you start to go down that's why I start wondering, do you think Anderson Silva should fight again? Not whether he has the right to, because he does, but do you think he should get back in the cage with anybody in any organization? No, I, I don't. But what I have found is that the senior division, and I think that's appropriate name, the name that you just used, the senior, but we have to also call it the senior legends division, because it's not stinky senior fighters. It's legendary, really good, you know, fighters that used to be like former champions that are now really old. So we'll call it the legendary seniors division. I, I just tend to find that those guys don't hit as hard anymore at 45 either. And, and sometimes when you match them, I, look, I tend to find that those legend fights are terrible, right? They're both really slow. They're both out of their prime. I'm like, why are we doing this? Uh, I wish both of these guys would have retired five years ago. I constantly find myself saying that. I hope nobody gets hurt. But I'm much more comfortable with the legendary seniors fighting another legendary senior than I am fighting anyone in his prime. But, no, I don't think Anderson should fight anymore, especially Anderson Silva, who made enough money during his career. Some of these MMA guys didn't make the money that the legendary boxers do. They're making that money now, but when we go back and look at you know, the Tito Ortizes who made good money, uh, the Randy Couture's who made really good money, they probably didn't make as much money as people think. Um, and we see some of them hanging on now, like Fedor fighting in Bellator, and it's sad to see Fedor getting knocked out by light heavyweights. And um, So I hope Anderson doesn't fight again, because Anderson made plenty of money, and I think he has enough money to take care of his family forever. And uh, I hope to not see him on the legendary seniors tour. That kind of falls into your guy, uh, Stefan Bonner, as well, too, right? Yep. Stefan came back for a fight in Bellator against Tito. Mm -hmm. right. And Stefan admitted that uh, he probably shouldn't have done it, but, you know, they offered him a bunch of money. But at the time, Stefan was still only like 39. So he wasn't, or 38. Right. He wasn't that far removed from his prime. A 45 year old Anderson Silva who, to Frank's point, isn't just 45. He's, he's, at, he's at that age where you see it. When he gets hit, he just crumbles. Like it, It's physically you get nervous when he gets hit now. Bonner, I don't think, ever got to that point where when he got hit, you got nervous. Anderson's at that point.
Yeah, and, and when you mentioned uh, Anderson Silva, too, I, I never thought that he was quite the same after Weidman knocked him out the first time, although he certainly showed glimpses and he's been a great fighter. But you mentioned Randy Couture, and sometimes I wonder if because Randy Couture was so good for so long that maybe it gives these other guys a false sense of, well, I can do it again. One that immediately comes to mind, you mentioned the heavyweights in that, but a lighter guy that did, I, I pray to God that we never see B.J. Penn try to do this again. Oh, I hopefully not, but started it all George Foreman if George Foreman never would have came back and and got that big knockout of Michael Moore then maybe we wouldn't have had the Randy Couture's trying it but you're right there's been plenty of guys and that's why it's not just about the age it's not whether you're 40 or 42 or 44 it's more of what Frank said the fact that you can see it when they're out there that as soon as they get touched not only are they going down but it looks scary they're crumbling and Anderson's at that point now where he doesn't take shots well. When he gets hit, he's not just going down. He's going down in a heap sometimes, and that's when you start to worry about guys' health. And take it to a boxing uh, perspective, we're three weeks away from Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. Oh, man. <laughs> I know, right? And then Mike Tyson coming out today saying that he's going to disable Roy Jones Jr., I don't know if he's capable of that. I don't know if this is all talk or what, but uh, uh, this fits right into kind of what we're talking about here. And uh, as far as the naming, just we, I think we have to do what, what golf is doing. They just call it what the champions tour. You know, they stay away from the seniors. Remember they were seniors circuit or whatever it was called for a long time, the seniors tour, and they got all bent out of shape with that. Uh, call it the champions. Well, I mean, the, the Big Ten has the legends and champions. Yeah, of, I, I mean, know, you know, sometimes some, sometimes you just overname it and you overthink and that kind of stuff. Too. But you bring it back to boxing. Was there a sadder thing for a sportsman ever than to see Muhammad Ali at the end of his career? Oh, yeah. When, when he's fighting oh, Holmes and, uh, no. and, and he's, he's basically looking at the ref playing, please don't make me hit him anymore. Oh, I know. The Holmes-Ali fight might have been the worst. Just that was terrible. That was so terrible. All right, Matt, we appreciate you, my man. We'll let you get back to it. Uh, you can check out Matt's picks along with all of ours on the website at tcmartinshow.com. as part of the best bets himself, Scott Spritzer, Brian Benowitz, uh, Frank and myself, and our good friend Adam Joseph from Opportunity Village. Uh, been doing pretty good on the best bets, Matt, so keep it up, man. Thanks, guys. Hey, Maction, back tomorrow night. That's right, right? There it is. The Mac is back. Most people forgot all about that. Used to be on a Tuesday night. Now they're going to move it over to Wednesday? Who knows? I don't know. Action Wednesdays, the entire conference playing tomorrow night, baby. I'm fired up. All right. Frank Solich, another guy, 76 years old. Older than Alice Cooper there, Frank. Frank yeah. Solich. Alice still Cooper. Still co coaching at Ohio U. Alice Cooper wants to be elected. 72 years old and still younger than who's ever going to be nominated. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Take care, man. All right, see you guys. All right, there he is, Matthew Holt. When we come back, the legend himself. Maybe they should all get in the octagon. Maybe they should just oh, fight it out. Geez. Be part of the legend senior tour. <laughs> Bob Arum joins us. Top ranked boxing next. This is Showtime Sean Porter. You know I'm tuning into the TC Martin Show. All right, let's talk a little boxing here with our good friend, the promoter extraordinaire, the Hall of Famer himself. Top-ranked boxing just on the heels of uh, two weekends ago, a fantastic fight at the MGM Grand without any fans, where Lopez defeated Lomachenko, and we talked to, to Bob Arum prior to that. We'll get his thoughts on that now. Happy Election Day, Bob. How you doing, my friend? Good. I'm here. I voted a month ago. So I'm <laughs> here in front of my set watching the returns. Anybody listening? 
get the hell out. I hasn't voted. Get the hell out and vote now. There you go. Bob, I want to share with you something here. That I, I got an email yesterday, and uh, the email was, uh, uh, and I say this jokingly, from uh, your, your good buddy Don King. It said, uh, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to be performed. Vote Trump, vote Trump, vote Trump for a better America. And he goes on and on and about talking about vote Trump to get rid of the corrupt, rigged system. Vote Trump for liberty, equality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Only made in America at the end by your buddy, Don King. What do you think of that? How did I get well, this, Bob? Did, did, did you, did you uh, get some spam mail sent to my way? How did I get this? Well, I'm, you know, I'm for Joe Biden, so if maybe I invented King's letter to send to everybody, because Don King is hardly a spokesperson uh, for anybody. And to talk about corruption, give me a break. I thought you'd get a kick out of that. I uh, looked at my email yesterday. I said, oh, all right. Got an email from Don King. How, how crazy. But you're right. Yes, everyone uh, get out and vote. All right, yeah. let's talk about the the fight a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, it was uh, it was an upset. Well, to some... first, go ahead, go ahead. Let go me. Ahead. You're skipping the fight last Saturday. Oh, I know. Which was a, an incredible fight with this Japanese phenomenon, who's the bantamweight champion in a week, and he fought this real tough Australian Jason Maloney, and exhibited unbelievable skills before finally knocking. Maloney out in the seventh round. People are raving about uh, Inouye, uh, just as they're raving about Teofimo Lopez uh, for the great victory he pulled off against Lomachenko. Yeah, Inouye, I remember when you guys signed him, when he had that great fight uh, in Japan, and uh, a lot of people knew that he was going uh, to be to be something special here when he beat Nonito Donaire, which actually turned out to be a great fight and a close fight, right? And, yeah, uh, real good fight. Yeah, that was a great fight. And, and I, I remember when you signed him immediately uh, after that. And you're right, that, that was a great fight. And uh, this guy is something special. And he's literally a monster. And uh, yeah. he's going to be something special, no doubt, no doubt. So that was a great fight. But, yeah, going, going back uh, you know, to the Lopez-Lomachenko uh, fight, Bob, uh, let's go back and get your thoughts on that. For a lot of people, they considered that an upset. Uh, you have both fighters, and I know that you said that you thought it was going to be a good, uh, you know, close fight. But I think, you know, we all thought that Lomachenko would would uh, gut this thing out. Uh, give me your thoughts on the fight. Well, you know, I must say, uh, I knew how good Lopez was, and I knew what a great banger he was and what terrific power he had. I didn't realize that he was so proficient as a boxer, so quick with his feet, and how intelligent, what a high boxing IQ uh, he has. Uh, I knew, uh, you know, I gave him points for all of that, but not to the extent that he exhibited in the fight with Lomachenko. Really blew me away. Why do you feel Lomachenko started out so slow? And we've seen him do this before, as he likes to say, you know, he likes to kind of gather data, and then he, he puts his foot on the gas, but he really didn't put his foot on the gas until, you know, maybe round eight or so, and uh, he got so far behind. Uh, g- give me your thoughts on, on his game plan and the way he attacked this fight against Lopez or, or failed to attack it, really. Well, he had prepared, I think, 
totally differently. He had prepared for the fact that Lopez would come out, throw big punches, tire himself out, and then Lomachenko would take him apart. But Lopez changed the script on him. He boxed them. He outboxed them because Loma starts slow. And he showed great proficiency in how he boxed. And by the time Lomachenko realized what was happening, the fight was over. You're talking about how Lomachenko tends to start out slow, and obviously Lopez's camp knew about that as well. Do you think that was part of their game plan going in, going, this guy's probably going to start out a little bit slow feeling it out, so we're going to go right from the gun to try to get it in our advantage and maybe take the heart out of him and get ahead on those scorecards and make this a fight that essentially we can't lose at a certain point, and that seemed to come to fruition when it all was said and done. Yeah, but they didn't they... – their plan usually is to come out like a house on fire and overwhelm the opponent and take him out. They didn't do that with Lomachenko. They fought within them himself. He fought within himself, and it, he did. It was a brilliant performance. So I, you know, give him all the credit in the world. He fought a great fight, very intelligent fight, extremely intelligent. Bob, we saw the scorecards kind of all over the place and some pretty big discrepancies, too. I know Julie Letterman's card, uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that you were a little bit critical about that scoring. So give us some thoughts on that. Well, you know, I watched uh, the um, uh, the fight. I was there. I was in the bubble. And while I felt that... Uh, Lomachenko clearly lost the fight. Lopez clearly won it. I mean, there were four rounds in there which were clear Lomachenko rounds when he pulled himself together. And then I thought Lopez won the fight by gutting it up and pulling out the 12th round. But at a minimum, I gave Lomachenko four rounds. And how Julie could only give him one, I don't know what she was seeing. I mean, some of those rounds, those four rounds, weren't even remotely close. I mean, Lomachenko won them clearly. And pretty much we're talking about 8, 9, 10, 11, right? Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Uh, Both guys needed surgery, Bob. Uh, Lopez on his right foot, Lomachenko on his right shoulder. How long is this going to sideline these guys? Well, I, I I don't know yet. I'm supposed to meet with Lopez and his people next week. Uh, Lomachenko is not going to be able to uh, uh, get back uh, uh, into training until sometime in January. What about a rematch here? Is that something you believe that you want to see happen? Do the fighters want to see happen? And is that is that as marketable now? DC. Let me tell you the, the, the honest-to-God truth. What I want to see happen means absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's whether the fighters okay. themselves I asked you that. Want- yeah, I said, put, put, yeah. Do, do, the, do they want to fight each other again? That I, I, I perfectly stayed away and did not, uh, did not uh, talk to either of them about a, a rematch. I mean, let's wait. Uh, uh, everything cool down. 
and then I'll be talking to them. I'll be, I mean, Lopez probably would want to fight, if he, even if he agreed to a rematch, he would want to fight somebody else uh, before that because uh, he probably wants to go in February or March, assuming the, the foot is okay. So, again, well, I'll know something much, much better um, uh, in, um, uh, in, in a couple of weeks. You know, his dad, obviously, we talked about that before, too, how he just wanted Lomachenko. He predicted this. He was uh, very boisterous. What was a Lopez Sr. like after the fight? I, I, I thought that uh, because what he was predicting came to fruition, uh, he was less exuberant afterwards because he didn't need to be exuberant. In other fact, he strutted around nicely and let people uh, say, well, he was right. You know what I mean? He was smart enough that he didn't have to toot his own horn. Seeing a fight of this magnitude in the bubble, so to speak, with no fans, what was that like? Uh, what was that atmosphere like? And do you expect more bigger names getting together if they continue to have to have fights without fans? Well, you know, we're in coronavirus, and it's very, very serious. I have a brother-in-law now is in intensive care. You know, it's not to be taken for granted. It's not to be played lightly. So, yeah, we'll be in the bubble for this big fight coming up, uh, uh, and it'll be shown live on ESPN on the 14th of November right. with uh, Terrence Crawford defending his welterweight title against Kel Brook. Uh, the English welterweight, who has a big victory uh, over uh, Shane Porter. And uh, uh, also on that card is the other Maloney, Andrew Maloney, challenging Franco uh, for the super flyweight title. Uh, so that's November 14th. And while it would draw a big crowd if these were normal times, it's going to take place in the bubble. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. November 14th, Terrence Crawford right. back in the ring yeah. against Kel Brook. Looking forward to that. Yeah. All right, Bob, uh, we've talked about Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder before. It looks like this fight is not happening anytime soon. Uh, what can you tell us and, and fill us in on the latest, uh, uh, what happened here with the negotiations and everything? Well, the contract for the, re for the third fight ran out uh, in Octo early October. That was it. it was supposed to, the fight was supposed to be held in July. It was a 90-day postponement for injury. Uh, so it ran out in October. We tried uh, to put the fight on, nevertheless, on December 19th. And when I talked to Tyson Fury, I said to him, uh, we were working with uh, Jim Mirren, uh, the coronavirus czar with the casinos, we were going to do the fight in Allegiant Stadium on the 19th for about 10 to 15,000 people, and the casinos were going to buy the tickets, and we, everybody would be tested, and that was the plan. And the originally, both of the networks, Fox, which does BBC, and ESPN, which does our fights, uh, said that was a good date, December 19th. 
But then college football and professional football got into action, and they both informed us that were, there were five conference championships that day and two NFL games. So December 19th, they said, was impossible. So at that particular point, uh, Fury said, well, I want to fight in December anyway, and he's going to fight on December 5 uh, in the U.K., and then he wants to go into a Joshua fight if Joshua beats Pula on December 12th. So, again, uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, uh, what Wilder should do is quit complaining, quit making crazy, unfounded charges, which is just nonsense. I mean, he's acting like he's Donald Trump. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and get back in the ring and fight somebody and show people that you still have it. I mean, you know, imagine he claimed that his corner guy, uh, Mark Breland, who everybody knows is a high-type guy, an Olympic champion, a world champion, a great trainer, uh, spiked his water. I mean, is he crazy? Uh, and then he uh, uh, called, uh, uh, he said that Kenny Bayless uh, was inebriated when he did the fight. Uh, and then he said that uh, uh, Tyson Fury fooled around with the gloves, put an object in the gloves, and that's why he was so powerful. When anybody, including Wilder, who knows anything about boxing in Nevada, knows that at the weigh-in, the fighters select their gloves, they sign them, the commission holds the gloves, and they don't give the gloves to the fighter until the fighter is in the dressing room with the inspector from the commission and in both dressing rooms and the their gloves, and they're not allowed to take the gloves off because the inspector is watching him. So it's absolutely preposterous what he is saying. And, I mean, I mean it just couldn't even happen, not that it would happen. And he ends up calling uh, Fury a thief and a cheat and a criminal. I mean, that's, that's horrible. You don't do that. And, and I think exactly what you said, Bob, the shocking part, this is from Mark Breland, a guy that was, you know, revered as a U.S. Olympian and a, and a great pro fighter as well, too. And to, to hear that from him, that, that takes a step back, you know, for, for a lot of fans as well. And any of us that know Kenny Bayless like we know him personally, inebriated, are you kidding me? The guy goes about his business uh, better than any referee I've ever witnessed in my life. Uh, just a class act all the way around. But Yeah, anyway. I agree. I agree. Bob, as a promoter, what's the most challenging thing for you right now to put together a card? Is it getting the fighters to maybe agree to a little bit less number because of no live gate? Is it putting undercards together? Is it getting visas and travel things going? Because I'm assuming that there's things that you're facing right now trying to promote fights that you didn't have to necessarily face, certainly not to this level, before coronavirus uh, hit the entire planet. All of those are problems. For example, this uh, Crawford fight with Kell Brook. Kell Brook um, 
is, as you know, a, a citizen of the U.K., and uh, he needed the visa, and he did all the work to get the visa. And then the uh, uh, embassy in London uh, uh, had problems. Uh, they, they're understaffed. They, they're not, because of the virus over in London, they're not uh, fully uh, staffed the way they usually are. And so Brooks, the issuance of his visa, there was no question, was delayed. And we had to go to Senator Rosen and her office uh, to ask a favor of the uh, embassy in London. And she got an expedited treatment. Uh, so he got um, uh, his um, a visa, uh, and he's now in uh, Las Vegas training in Vegas. All right. He is Bob Arum, promoter extraordinaire. And again, the next major fight coming up on November 14th. Terrence Crawford back in the ring against Kell Brooks. Going to be a good one. Bob, before we let you go, i got to get some New York Giant thoughts from you. Your team, they gave a Valen Everett last night. I thought they were going to knock off Brady and the Bucks, but it didn't happen. It's time for you to give your give your Giants a pep talk over there, Big Blue. Well, you talk, no, you talk about a neighbor aid. Those, <laughs> those, those, those referees, I mean... They throw a flag for pass interference on the two-point conversion, and then they pick it up. Yeah. And some of those calls were horrible during the during the night. But it is what it is. I mean, this won't be a giant year, but maybe next year it'll be different. There you go. Holding out hope. All right, my friend. Hey, thanks for the time uh, again, Bob. Really appreciate it as always. Good talking to you. There you go. All right, thank you. Bob Arum. The Hall of Fame promoter, International Boxing Hall of Fame. No one has done it better over the course of time, promoting going back to the uh, late 60s, Muhammad Ali and company, and still going strong with top-ranked boxing. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a, a lot of information there, a lot of different things to dissect. Uh, I know that we were talking yesterday and uh, mentioned you, well, maybe we should get him on after you got that treat from uh, the, 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 the thing from from Trump, the email and everything. But, but yeah, there's so much to go on, and, you know, boxing is exciting and that, but, but it's such a different time and everything, and it is strange. Uh, I'm sure it's strange being at the venues. I'm sure it's it, it, it's weird watching them on TV. I've kind of adjusted to it. I don't even notice it that much anymore that there aren't fans in that. The only times I notice it is like when we were talking about yesterday a little bit, when the people on the TV in that get a little bit overzealous with their sounds in that, and you know that's not the way that it would sound even if there were fans there. Sometimes they make it worse by trying to make it seem like yeah. normal or something like that. Just let it play out. I mean, we're, we're all going through this together. Yeah, I think we're all getting used to it. I got used to baseball over time, you know, watching the playoffs and the World Series and everything. But, uh, you know, you know how I feel about boxing. I love being and I miss being at, uh, at the matches and at the fights. And to me, there's nothing that compares to being in an arena for a world championship fight and seeing that ring walk and that anticipation. And uh, hopefully we can get back to that. And again, you know, with the stable of champions that Bob Arum and Top Rank have, uh, you know, we're missing out right now uh, on that. At least, you know, like, uh, their deal with ESPN has been great that they've been able to to still bring these fights to people on t- on television. But, man, can you imagine being at these fights that we're missing right now? Oh, I mean, it'd be great, uh, just like it was before, and hopefully it will be again in the not-too-distant future. But, you know, one thing we've talked about a lot, too, 
in the stands and that the cardboard cutouts and then I think we're on the same page. We're not crazy about it. At first, maybe it was a little bit funny and novel, and now it's a little bit overblown and it's overdone and that. But what do you think about the people on the video screens that are watching it? Supposedly, like on Monday Night Raw, and that they show that, and I know they had some of that at the even at the U.S. Open and that. And I think it's cool at the end, like when Serena would talk to her family or something, and they have the people close to them after a match, and they're kind of on a big Zoom call on the giant screen TVs and that. But I don't mind that. But at the same time, even that's phony. It's like, is this real time? Is it this that? It's just, it it all seems so hokey. It's like they're trying to force feed us something that just isn't genuine. Right. Remember the first time we saw this was the NFL draft when you know Roger Goodell's there, hey, talking to the fans, and they're now we're seeing it in every NFL football game telecast that after a team scores, they'll show the little box of about ten or twelve fans, and they're going crazy. And no, I I don't want to see that. Yeah. I'd rather see cardboard cutouts. I'd rather just see the empty stands. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, too. That's it. So article in the paper today, uh, they had the big power players, it said, uh, with their supporting. And they had Bob Arum uh, talking about who they donated their campaigns uh, funding to and you know who they were supporting. So Bob Arum supporting, obviously, Joe Biden, uh, Dana White, Mark Davis, and Bill Foley on there. And uh, it was split 2-2. Well, yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> everybody knows, uh, you know, who Dana White's going for. Yeah. He spoke at the Republican National Convention, for crying out loud. Right. So there's only one person he's going to speak for. And Bill Foley, too. Yeah, and, and yeah. Foley, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a big proponent. He's given a lot of money to Trump and the uh, and, and the Republicans all over the place. And, you know, it, it, it's funny, too, and, again, regardless of which side you're on, I just we, I just wish we could get back to some civility. You know, we've always had in our lifetimes, Democrats and Republicans, there was the Whigs and the this and that long before all that stuff. But Democrats and Republicans is what we've grown up with our entire life. And there's always been different sides and different agendas. But there was also respect and there was conversation and there was compromise. And right now, I just don't see the respect you can't get anything done if you can't compromise and have a conversation. I just hope that at some point we can get back to civility and respect each other's opinions. Yours might be different than mine. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means we have different views, but we should still respect each other. I haven't seen a lot of that recently. Right. No, well said. We saw that in the d- debates and everything else that's going on and with social media and everything. It's it's crazy. And, uh, you know, we, we know what the last four years have been like uh, for me. I wonder what tomorrow is going to be like. What's going to be like tomorrow? What's going to be like in January? Because those are the big uh, question marks right now. There's a lot of fear for a lot of people out there. All so I know we'll is I hope that in 2024, yeah. when the next presidential election comes, yeah. we don't see the whole country literally having to board up their windows for fear exactly. of the violence that might happen. Exactly. This is ridiculous, Let's be people. smart and be safe out there, people. Everybody. All right. Tomorrow, the big seven-footer joins us. Good poll question contest with the big seven-footer. Hang tight with that from a sports perspective. Scott Spritzer joins us as well. For VGK Frank, Ballpark Frank, and Numchuck, take care. I want to thank Bob Arum, Matthew Holt, and TJ Reeves for joining us. If you miss any part of the show, go to the website, tcmartinshow.com. Go-